Welcome to the educational podcast of the American Academy of Orofacial Pain. I am Isabel Moreno Hay, Director of the Orofacial Pain Program at the University of Kentucky. The American Academy of Orofacial Pain, also known as AAOP, is an organization of dentists and health providers dedicated to alleviating pain and suffering of patients through the promotion of excellence in education, research, and patient care in the field of orofacial pain and associated disorders. If you would like to learn more about the AOP and its mission, please visit our website at www.aaop.org. In this series of podcasts, we will be talking to renowned experts in the field of orofacial pain and temporomandibular disorders. For example, in today's episodes, we have the pleasure of inviting Dr. Hal Menchel. Dr. Menchel is faculty in the Department of Prostodontics at Nova Southeastern School of Dental Medicine. His orofacial pain training was under Dr. Sparker Mahan and Henry Gremillion at the University of Florida Facial Pain Center. Dr. Menchel received his board certification by the American Board of Orofacial Pain in 2000, and his practice is dedicated just to patients with orofacial pain in Coral Springs, Florida. He's an international speaker, educator, and has published articles in peer-reviewed journals, including JADA and Oral and Maxillofacial Clinics of North America. He also reviews articles for the Journal of Prosthetic Dentistry and JADA. Dr. Menchel is the liaison to the American Medical Association for Orofacial Pain, Coding, and Access to Care. Welcome, Dr. Menchel. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm, gl I'm glad to I'm glad to uh, meet with you today, Isabel, and uh, I hope that uh, this is going to be beneficial for people. Uh, this discussion will be beneficial for people. Thank you. Uh, I'm sure it will. Thank you for having me. Today we will be discussing the use of occlusal appliances in the management of temporomandibular disorders, also known as TMD. Dr. Menchel, I wanted to begin by asking you, we know that there are different types of appliances. Uh, could you define for us what type of intraoral appliance we will be discussing today and what is the evidence that we have for the use of these occlusal appliances in patients that suffer from TMD? Of course, there are many different appliances, but, and I don't want to go into the details of different appliances used for sleep, used for orthodontics, and so on. So today we're going to limit the discussion uh, basically for acrylic appliances that are placed in the mouth uh, to treat temporomandibular disorders. And the appliance we're going to be talking about mostly is the appliance that's used predominantly in the field of treating temporomandibular disorders which is a full coverage flat plane stabilization splint. There are many other appliances, but I'm not gonna really discuss those that much. So you asked about the evidence base, am I correct? That's correct, yeah. yeah. What evidence okay. do we have about the, the importance of this use of these occlusal appliances in patients with TMD? This is the, probably the, the, the center of, of what the talk is gonna to be today because I've been using intraoral appliances in my practice. And by the way, if you hear me say bite splints or splints, we're talking about the same thing. I've been using these appliances in my practice for 30 or 35 years. They're an essential part of my practice. They're an essential part of what most dentists use in treating temporomandibular disorders. And I've had great success with them or what I believe is great success, but I had an epiphany about four years ago when I was working for the American Academy uh, 
and I presented trying to get a code for oral appliances or a new insurance code in front of the American Medical Medical Association's uh, coding committee, which is 20 doctors, uh, very prestigious doctors who decide what medical codes can be used. And these, these physicians all know the evidence base extremely well. So I went in, honestly, very naively, and I proposed a new code for an intraoral appliance or splint to the committee. They discussed this, and they refused my application, basically saying to me, Dr. Menchel, the evidence base just doesn't support this procedure. And this was a a negative epiphany, but it, it really got to me. And when I went back and really went through the literature, on the use of bite splints for treating TMD, I discovered they're right. The literature is just very poor. Uh, the evidence base is weak at best. And uh, there's tremendous problems with the literature, especially when it comes to randomized clinical trials. So to cut to the chase here, the short answer is, although we all use oral appliances, although we believe in them very much, and we want to continue the use of them, As far as an actual evidence base from randomized clinical trials, we don't have it. So you had mentioned, yeah, the lack of evidence base. So what is the importance of having evidence-based dentistry and how relevant is it for our field of orofacial pain? It's just as important as it is in medicine or in other sciences. You have to have a protocol that's standardized and controlled from one Uh, experimenter or one researcher to the next that can be duplicated so it can be compared in different studies. For instance, so many studies, so many drug studies are done on Worcester rats, which is not a human study, it's an animal study, but these are genetically bred rats to be identical from one lab to another. So when they're doing animal studies with, with drugs and medications, they have a model to use that's consistent from one, play, from one lab to another. We don't have that model. We don't have, everybody who's doing bite splints may be doing different bite splints. They can be made out of different materials, uh, different, the, the, the experience of the practitioners may be different who are doing the, who are doing the bite splints. So we need a consistent experimental model, and then we need to be able to apply this so that we have a control and we have an experimental group. But we have to start by getting a specific medical model uh, in in going ahead with bite splints. And this is critical for our profession. It's critical to produce the evidence base. It's critical for us trying to ever get specialty today. Uh, And it's critical for our patients. So in your opinion, it is important to come up with a human medical model, right, in order to conduct good randomized clinical trials for splint therapy? Yes. So would you mind explaining to us what are exactly the mechanism of action of these occlusal appliances? If you, again, look at the literature, you'll see in 95% of the studies. And I'm now taking this, probably I have gone through over 5,000 clinical studies, just articles on bite splints. And the consistent argument is, and you'll see what a consistent statement is, that, you know, we don't really know what the mechanism of bite splints are. 
So what do we know? What we know is the following. Let's talk about number one, joint loading. Do bite splints reduce joint loading? This evidence is pretty good because there's been both human and animal studies as well as computer, computer modeling studies to show that if you put a, a bite splint or a hard acrylic device in the mouth, or sometimes even a soft, a soft acrylic device, and that splint goes between the posterior teeth, between the molars, and the patient bites down, that there will be less compressive force on the TMJs. Now, I want to explain that because a lot of people think that when they put a bite splint in, they're increasing joint space. In other words, they're distracting the joint or they're pulling the joint away from the fossa, and that's the way the splint works. That's not what we have found. What we have found is that you just get less compression of the joint. You don't get an expansion of the joint space. So this is pretty clear. We know that a properly constructed bite splint with good posterior support will reduce joint loads. And we, have, we do have good data on that. The second data, the second thing we had that we do know that, that is well evidence-based is that if you have mechanical stress on joints, if you have excessive forces on joints, and this is through the research of Dr. Steve Milam and John Schmitz in the mid-90s, that you can reduce inflammation in joints. In, 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 uh, I'm going to rephrase that. If you reduce mechanical stress, there's a possibility that you're reducing inflammation in the joint. And this goes through Dr. Milam's explanations that less inflammatory mediators, free radicals uh, are created. He talks about the process related. Uh, he calls it ischemia reperfusion, where pressure cuts off the blood supply to a joint. And then when that pressure is released, you get inflow of, of blood into the joint and increased inflammation. So let me review. We know that reducing load to joints uh, we can reduce load to joints with bite splints. We also know that reducing load to joints, according to the science we have, should decrease inflammation. However, there's been no study to date that confirms that. And this is the study we need to do. There's actually one study that was done which found there was no difference in inflammatory mediators in inflammation between patients who wore bite splints and patients who didn't wear bite splints over a six-month study. So again, this is something we need to revisit. So the third thing we have is we know that we're reducing load. We hope that we're reducing inflammation in joints with bite splints, but we also know that there's a cognitive, uh, a cognitive feedback that when somebody puts a bite splint in their mouth, at least short term, um, it may decrease bruxism. It may make them more conscious. Uh, it, there may be a behavioral aspect uh, of putting the bite splint in the mouth that can reduce pain also. Those studies are fairly well supported in terms of many bite splints do cause less brux bruxism over the short term. Again, all bets are off as far as the long term, but over the short term, there's definitely a decrease in bruxism. And there may be just different uh, proprioceptive biofeedback type things that come from a bite splint which help the patient. Uh, it may be nothing more than keeping their teeth apart because we know in some patients, if we just teach them to keep their teeth apart during the day, that they're doing better and they don't necessarily need a bite splint in their mouth. 
Uh, I think that covers what we know as far as the evidence base. Yes, you were going to ask a question. Mm -hmm. So is the joint position important when we are managing patients with occlusal appliances? And what type of design do you recommend using? In terms of what we knew, let's say, in the 1960s, 70s, early 80s, um, there were many people who proposed that there should be an ideal position for the TMJ and that when the TMJ, the joint was in this position, when the condyle was centered in the fossa, the disc was in good position, um, the muscles, that the muscles would relax. And this is a position that we needed to put the joint in. We know now that that, that does not, has not held up to any kind of research uh, that's been done and that the joint can be in many different positions uh, in terms of TMJ and uh, TMD and the person and the patient can do very, very well. Um, I'll talk later when we discuss anterior repositioning splints, where in some patients, bringing the jaw into a protrusive position can be more beneficial than just a flat plane splint, which I'll also describe in one second. One thing that the literature indicates is that in general, you do not want to put a bite splint in that would cause a retrusive position of the jaw. This is equivocal, but there's some research saying that many TMD patients, especially those patients uh, with uh, disc displacements may have more uh, posterior joint positions. The joint may be pushed back. The splint I'm talking about is a full coverage, hard acrylic, flat plane splint, and it can be placed either on the maxilla and or the mandible. And it should be adjusted to even occlusal contact. Uh, again, we can discuss, I, I, I prefer to adjust these splints in just the way the patient bites habitually, although I may guide them into this. And in general, it's considered that if the patient goes into a lateral excursion on the splint, that the back teeth should come apart. Um, again, more research needs to be done on this. So just to reiterate, hard acrylic, flat plane splint placed on the upper or lower uh, arch, uh, adjusted very carefully and precisely uh, by the dentist. Anything else I didn't cover there that you have a question? Uh, no, I think you covered it very well. I wanted to ask you, what's your opinion then on the partially coverage appliances? Uh, partial cover coverage appliances. And we're talking about anterior bite planes, uh, uh, NTI type appliances for anterior co coverage where the back teeth are apart, or posterior appliances like a gelb splint where the patient contacts only in the back and not in the front. Uh, again, understanding that our evidence is poor. Um, NTIs have been shown not to be in the literature have not, there's been no major difference between NTIs and full coverage splints. There's some literature which shows that NTIs may be putting excessive uh, load on joints because there's now a space between the back teeth. Uh, you've lost posterior support. And if the patient is clenching, there are studies that show us you may get increased pressure to the joint or increased mechanical stress. To finish up with the anterior bite appliances, since certainly they're no more effective and they may be creating mechanical stress on the joints. But the other thing is that there's been anecdotal reports. Again, we don't have the literature 
and pictures showing that these can cause occlusal changes where you get anterior open bite uh, either from anterior intrusion of the teeth and or posterior eruption because the back teeth don't touch that and that these can create bite changes over time. And the reverse is also true for the posterior or gelb type appliances where the patient gets a posterior open bite. Having said all this, in terms of partial appliances, since they haven't been proven to be any better than any other appliances, since they can cause occlusal changes or anecdotally can cause occlusal changes, and since they can possibly put more stress on the TMJs, there's no sense to me the main appliance that should be used is the appliance that's the safest, which is a full coverage flat plate appliance that I've discussed. So in your practice, what protocol do you follow for spleen therapy based on the diagnosis of the patient? Uh, I'm really glad you brought that up because it's something that needs to go into uh, whatever experimental protocol we come up with. Diagnosis. Different, different TMD patients have to be treated according to diagnosis. And the two diagnostic criteria that I use are the diagnostic criteria for TMD or the DCTMD, which was proposed by our colleague, Dr. Eric Schiffman, or revised by our colleague, Dr. Eric Schiffman in 2014. And for disc displacements, I use the classification of Dr. Clyde Wilkes, who was an oral surgeon at the University of Minnesota uh, in the 1980s. So we can have a lot of different diagnoses in TMD. We can have muscle pain, which are which is one class of patient. We can have disc displacements, which are another class of patient. We can have arthritis or just joint inflammation is another class of patient. And many of us get referred to patients that really don't fall into all those categories, maybe type ones, which are headache patients. So depending upon the patient, you know, I want to use the type of splint, which is more appropriate with the patient. For instance, in headache patients, if a patient has primary headache, they may not need a splint at all. This may be something that is better dealt with with a neurologist rather than them coming to us for a splint. On the other hand, if that headache patient has tension headache and has joint pain and muscle pain associated with it, then sure, go ahead and, and you can do a flat plane type of splint on that patient. An arthritic patient is a joint patient. They'll benefit very, very much if they're having an arthritic flare-up. Um, from a flat plane splint. On the other hand, a patient with just muscle pain <clears throat> where you don't find any joint pain, especially these patients with chronic pain, fibromyalgia, and widespread pain, don't particularly do well with splints in many cases. These are the patients that I'm least successful with. So getting back to what you said, if I have a patient, let's talk about a straightforward patient who has arthritis, um, has an arthritic flare-up of the joint, um, I will get that patient in, do my other therapy, put them in a flat plane splint. And because of an arthritic patient, I want to follow them carefully. I'll usually put them in a splint. I like to see the patient roughly a week or two later, or if they need to see me uh, before then. And then I'll find very often at the second appointment, I have the patient wear the splint in, for a half an hour to an hour, so everything's kind of settled in. I put the patient back in a 45 degree angle or have them lie back because I'm adjusting the splint for nighttime. 
and I'll have them just tap in their, their bite, and then I'll adjust the splint or readjust the splint from where it, I first had it. At this point, just with splint therapy, there's a lot of other things going on here, of course, with medications and physical therapy. If the patient's doing well, even after a week or two, um, I'll have the patient back in a month or two months to see what's happening. With arthritic patients, you can get bite changes. Those joints can be changing. The inflammation in the joint can be less. And you know you can have the patient just hitting where the bite splint's no longer even. And so I want to keep that, that splint adjusted in the patient. My typical protocol in a joint patient, I'll probably see that patient four to five times over a period of three to six months, uh, make sure they're comfortable in the splint. And then at that point, I'm basically finished with them. Arthritic patients, I want to see once a year. And if the patient is bruxing, arthritic patient, either way, they're going to, I want them to continue wearing the splint at night. But if the patient's bruxing at all, they should continue wearing the bite splint, at least to protect their teeth and to reduce uh, forces to the joint. So you mentioned sleep bruxism. So in patients that are bruxing, you would recommend the appliance for a longer period of time. If they don't have the sleep bruxism component, how long do you recommend therapy with, uh, with splints? I, first of all, I don't see any harm in a patient continuing to wear a splint, even if we can't prove bruxism. And I hear this from many patients. Again, this is uh, clinical and anecdotal. But if a patient just clenches, I question, you know, if you're going to see that much on the splint, depending upon how hard they clench. I mean, certainly you can have somebody who's maybe had a one or two time flare up of TMD. And if they want to discontinue splint wear and there's no evidence of bruxism on the splint, uh, I would say after, you know, after they're done with me, whether it's three or six months, they can certainly discontinue wearing the splint if there's absolutely no evidence of bruxism. I'll also tell you it's pretty rare. Hmm. And you mentioned before the anterior repositioning appliance. Uh, when would you indicate <clears throat> that type of appliance? This is where I go to uh, both the uh, diagnostic criteria for DMD and the Wilkes classification. So this is now a disc displacement with reduction, uh, which is a, a type 2 TMD, uh, DC TMD patient. It's also a type 2 Wilkes patient where he, he labels this patient as painful clicking and popping with occasional locking. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but when I put these patients in a flat plane splint, when they have occasional locking, there's a small minority of them which will go into a hard lock, you know, almost a patient where they lock and they don't, they don't reduce or they don't click anymore on opening. So to prevent that, what I do is I put a passive, now I shouldn't say that, I put a directive anterior repositioning splint, I usually use uppers, with a ramp on the front of it that brings the patient's jaw forward. In this position, this brings the, the condyle under the disc, and if the patient opens and closes from this position, most of the clicking popping or all of the clicking or popping will go away, and if they wear that splint at night, they're much less likely to go into any kind of permanent lock. The other time I'll use an anterior repositioning splint is if I have a severely, a patient with a severe arthritic flare-up where they, they, they're just having tremendous pain biting down, 
these patients, and I don't do it a lot, maybe 10% or less, I will bring forward to bring the condyle away from any of the inflamed tissue in the joint and for a short period of time, which is my final statement is that all of these appliances, the anti-repositioning appliances, I'll try to use for only a short period of time before I'll transition them back to a flat plane splint. And I'd say a short period in patients, I don't like to leave them in much over three months. After this period of time, uh, you can begin to get bite changes, most typically a posterior open bite, depending upon how much the patient wears the bite splint. I also wanted to ask you, uh, what is the difference between the maxillary appliance, the <clears throat> lower appliance? What would be the indications for one over the other? And, and, and do we base it on patient's preferences as well? <clears throat> well, patient's preference. Well, firstly, uh, in my experience, ma the mandibular spin is much more comfortable for the patient to wear. Um, they can speak with it. Uh, they can drink water with it. They're very comfortable wearing the lower appliance in general. Um, other than that, the principles as far as what we're doing, there should be no difference uh, between the upper and lower split, maybe the lower split better with compliance. I'll do uh, my, my, so that just comfort is, is one, bulk and comfort is the first objective we're looking for. Um, the second is occlusal plane. If you have an uneven occlusal plane on one arch, and when I'm talking about that, typically what you see is a two level occlusal plane on many of these patients where the lower incisors are erupted higher than the posterior teeth. So you have the posterior teeth lower, the anterior teeth higher. And if you try to do an upper splint on these patients, you end up with like a, a saddle or the anterior part of it. Uh, I'm not quite sure the term I'm thinking of, but it's not even. The anterior part of the splint is higher than the, the posterior part. So number one is I like to put the splint on the most even occlusal plane. And in most patients, it's a mandibular. Secondly, if you have patients that are missing teeth, particularly second molars, you want to make sure that you don't put the splint on that arch because you're going to leave an unopposed lower molar and that tooth could erupt and cause the bite to change. What's really important when you're treating a patient that's 16 to 20, 21 years old, is that that patient may not have had their third molars extracted. And you've got to follow that patient carefully because your original splint only covered back to the second molar. Now they're getting their third molars in, they can erupt, and this could cause an anterior open bite. So that's pretty much it in terms of how I decide which arch the splint goes on. Is you want to put it on the, on the arch with the most teeth, uh, mandibular more comfortable than maxillary, and occlusal plane considerations. And how long do you recommend these patients to wear it a day? Is it usually a nighttime use? Do you ever recommend it to use it also during daytime? What's your protocol? Uh, with an acute patient in acute pain, if they're more comfortable, I'll have them wear it just for one to two weeks during the day. I'm not a huge fan of day wear. I prefer to use interval timer training or, or some kind of uh, classical conditioning techniques to have them keep their teeth apart during the day. Most of my splints, most of my patients' splints, nightwear only, and even the anterior repositioning splint. So finally, I have my, my, my last question for you, and I always like to finish uh, by asking our guests the, the same type of question. How do you envision the future research in the field <clears throat> of splint therapy for the management of temporomandibular disorders? 
we have to get our act together. Our research right now, maybe because we're dentists, we're not used to being, being you know, medical researchers. Um, we need to come up with a basic dental medical splint model, research model. And even though it's not perfect, even though there may be some disagreements with it, I think we have to come up with using a flat plane acrylic splint, as, I, as I've discussed, with people who have been specifically trained, tested, and to where there's a standardized approach to the use of that splint from one researcher to another. And this is something that I think the organizations like American Academy, America, American Academy of Craniofacial Pain, the American Academy of Orofacial Pain, anybody that's welcome to come in and, and get a, our researchers in the future to all use the same splint model. Now, you can throw a ton of variables into that. You can throw in diagnoses. You can throw in different splint, but you've got a basic model. And of course, the first thing we have to do is to test that model with, a, with specific TMD diagnoses against a control. But the model should be the same. The research model has to be the same for every single splint study. And that's the only way we're ever going to get really good evidence as, as to, uh, to, you know, the efficacy of splints. Additionally, you know, we need to look at studies that show uh, inflammation in joints. We need to go back to that. And uh, are, you know, what is the inflammatory issues in terms of joints? How do splints affect that? But again, getting the basic splint protocol from researcher to researcher, having everybody use the same splint is really the basis for our future research. Dr. Menchel, thank you so much for taking your time to talk to us and for sharing your knowledge. Well, Isabel, thank you very, very much for having you. And just want to let everybody know we're doing this in the middle of the COVID crisis, which is why we have time to do it. And I wish everybody, hope they come through it well and that everybody was safe. Thank you, Dr. Menchel. If you would like to learn more about this subject or any other topics, please don't hesitate to visit our website at www.aalp.org. It was my pleasure to share this time with you. Thank you for listening.